0: Last week, we looked at a a pretty consistent reality among the doctrinally unstable. Historically, counterfeit religious practitioners make claims to have secret insights and revelations which can be accessed only by them and shared with others for a price. So, similarly, men and women have been infiltrating Christian churches with self-serving false doctrine since the church's inception. In fact, before the church's inception, because if you look at Leviticus 10, it opens with the narrative of uh, Nadab and Abihu who decided it'd be a good idea to get drunk and come up with their own way to worship God and kind of concludes by them being consumed with the very strange fire that they were attempting to offer. Hopefully I'll get this out of my system quickly here. Um, Paul doesn't lay out the false doctrine that's infiltrating the Colossian church and refute it explicitly. Instead, he alludes to it, I think, by invoking the language of those who were trying to infiltrate the church. He cites uh, mysterious uh, delusions, hidden things, persuasive arguments, um, but he does it in a kind of an ironic way, where he 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 invokes the gospel and the person and work of Jesus under the terms mystery and uh, secret things and hidden things, um, while also consistently reminding us that there was a time when we were deluded, there was a time when the things of God were a mystery to us, right? There was a time when the gospel was veiled and concealed from us, but it wasn't that some brilliant theologian finally made the complex understandable and explained it in a way that we could mentally grasp the gospel. It is that the gospel is so simple, so pure, and so undefiled by any kind of convoluted human reasoning All that has to happen for us to embrace Jesus Christ by faith is he must merely lift the veil of our own hearts, the veil of unbelief. So a work of God is done wherein we comprehend something so simple that immediately after we comprehend it, we look back and go, how did I not know that before? Well, it was veiled. But it wasn't any uh, theologian that revealed it to us. And so by contrast, now we should understand that everything necessary for life and godliness has been revealed to us. Amen? Um, If the gospel is still mysterious to you, it's because you haven't believed in Jesus Christ. If the gospel is still mysterious to you, it's because you've not received his word by faith. If eternal life and the means of obtaining it aren't clear it can only be because you have refused to embrace the person and work of Jesus Christ by faith that's the problem it's not that nobody has explained it to you clearly enough it isn't this might be your first time here so that's not me congratulating myself on my preaching that's me saying it is so simple to understand the gospel that if you don't it's because you are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Simply put, what should happen in your heart, if I, if I ever stand up here and claim that I have some new secret insight which has been hidden from biblical scholars for the last 2,000 years, is rejection should rise up. And then what should happen in this church is the elders should get really, really busy, really, really quickly uh, finding a new teaching pastor. What you will hear from this pulpit uh, is the same gospel, the same doctrine, and the same invitation to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. I'll try to put a different spin on it and keep it you know, engaging, but at the end of the day, it's the gospel. And the soul of the Christian thrills to be reminded of of the gospel. Amen? It doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to have tinsel and lights put on it. Although, Oh, that reminds me, (coughs) this is not a bunny trail mother, so go easy on me. They're gonna be doing a complete overhaul of the audio visual system up here. Uh, Allegedly, it's gonna start in July, but looking around, I get the sense it might be starting sooner than that. Anyway, at some point, unknown to us, we're gonna be kicked out for as long as it takes them to get everything replaced, which means we're gonna go back to Uh, 189 Locust Street and do church like this again. So um, pay attention to the signal group or we'll try to remind you from here if we get enough heads up. Right now they're saying July. Um, I'm hoping we get the first Sunday in July, which is July 2nd, because Nick Kennecott uh, is coming from Florida to preach for us. And I expect that There's going to be a few more people here because there are folks that know Nick that don't go to this church who probably want to come and hear from him. So my hope is we can be here the 2nd of July. All that to say, we don't need the colored lights, but I sure do like them, right? Um, What we do need is the same gospel, the same doctrine, and the same invitation to be in relationship with Jesus. I'll come get her. Don't even worry, Jenny. If we do this, if we turn our attention to social justice or we turn our attention to politics or money or sexual ethics or whatever acts I feel like grinding any given Sunday, we do so, listen, we do so at the expense of having our hearts fixated on the gospel and on Jesus Christ. What I'm suggesting to you is that if you, if you, listen to a man stand in the pulpit and most of what he says is about the world today and culture and what's going on and not about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's like one or the other is what's going to fill your heart by the time you leave. So what do we most need when we come in here on those Sundays when you actually manage to come in here? Well, she's, she's going the distance. Jenny, it's fine. Get that look off your face. We are glad she's in here, right? Yeah. All right. Um, <clears throat> if if if, <laughs> if you manage to make it to church, you you will come in here with some expectation. That's just a fact. It works like this. We're people, right? So you could just stay home and have another cup of coffee and kick your feet up and watch a movie. But so you put aside to a certain extent your own preferences and you get, you know, some of us get a little bit more dressed up than we would any other day of the week. And you come here, then there is this expectation in your heart that God is going to have something to say to you. Because you've come here and the guy who's standing up here is speaking from the logos, from the word of God. It's reasonable to think, I bet the Lord's going to teach me something today, right? So, uh, if you leave this place having heard a rousing political speech, or if you leave this place having heard seven hidden steps to financial security, or 12 secrets to a healthy marriage, if you leave this place having heard me make vague allusions to some secret deeper doctrine that you can have if you buy my book and study it, If you leave this place with anything other than a simple, faithful, gentle reminder that Jesus Christ is bigger than you, bigger than your problems, bigger than your diseases, bigger than your debt, and bigger than your sin, you've probably wasted your time. Because we come here with an expectation. Ellie Mae. So, oh my goodness, there's no mystery here, right? There's no, there's no secret knowledge, there's no hidden insights. There's no cleverly designed scheme for me to part you with your money. What we want is, like Paul, we want to make much of Jesus. So that's why we're here. And that's how we come to verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So the obvious question is, how did you receive Jesus Christ as Lord? Stop and, and think about that for a moment. How did you receive Jesus Christ as Lord? Oh, by the way, uh, this, this is just personal anecdotal uh, testimony. Probably the only thing you'll remember, though, because that's what's most interesting to me when I'm listening to somebody preach. <clears throat> it was this verse that began to chip away at the foundations of my cold, dead, Reformed theology. You want to know why? Why? Because one of the things that my Reformed doctrine had taught me is that the sovereignty of God and salvation establishes that your faith is a result of His intervening in your sin, right? Which, amen, I agree with. But I took it at, I don't know, 18, 19 years old and went the distance with that doctrine to the point where, like, I kind of liked the fact that God was sovereign so that once I shared the gospel with somebody, if they rejected it... Did my part. Guess guess God doesn't want him to be saved. I mean, I actually thought stuff like that. So then when I would hear Christians that really loved Jesus talking about, well, you need to receive Jesus into your heart, I'd be like, ha, 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 Jesus goes wherever he wants because he's sovereign. And it wasn't until I'd been, you know, beating people with my doctrine for a couple of years that I stumbled across this passage and saw it says, therefore, as you have received Jesus so walk in him well how did you receive Jesus Christ as Lord some of us to be sure first heard of Jesus in inaccurate terms right inaccurate we heard the gospel in inaccurate terms our first introduction to the gospel probably some of you would say it barely met the minimum requirements to even be the gospel depending on where you heard it and how you heard it. So I don't mean so much the means by which you came to receive Jesus Christ. I mean, Elena, the manner in which, I just like to get people when they're yawning, the manner in which you received Jesus. There's means and then there's the way, right? Does that make sense? So how did you receive Jesus Christ? What knowledge did you have? What track record did you have? What was your daily life like? What what kinds of things were you doing? What kinds of things were you buying when you received Jesus? What kinds of people were you giving yourself to? How many of us received Jesus? Raise your hand. How many of us received Jesus immediately after rescuing hundreds of children from a burning orphanage? How many of us received Jesus after completing a doctorate in expositional preaching? How many of us received Jesus after donating a few million dollars to a Christian charitable organization? How many of us received Jesus after spending decades on the missions field preaching the gospel? How many of us received Jesus after rescuing countless marriages from divorce by expertly counseling the couples to fill their hearts with love for God, which would in turn draw them together? How many of us received Jesus after finally ceasing to have any desire for drugs, alcohol, or sexual immorality, and thus came to him with immaculate hearts? How many of us received Jesus after fully comprehending the reality of the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man, and explaining it in in understandable terms at the University of Oxford? How many of us received Jesus after faithfully raising our children without ever raising our voices? How many of us received Jesus after going an entire year without being angry and wanting to murder a bureaucrat? I think that probably I got everybody now, right? How did you receive Jesus? What were the circumstances of your faith coming into existence? How much did you know? How much Bible did you understand? How much did you obey? Look at Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, uh, 36. If you get there before me and you're looking for what verse? Luke 7, 36. It says, one of the Pharisees, this is Luke 7 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of a Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet. And anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus, answering, said to him, I love that the Pharisee thinks it and Jesus answers it. Said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Oh, say it, teacher. So Jesus said, a money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who sat at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She knew, she knew so little compared to Simon, yet she loved so much compared to Simon, the Pharisee. This guy knew his stuff. I mean, Pharisees memorized the first five books of the Bible. Memorized. Bro, I can't make it through Leviticus half the time during my annual reading. I'm like, somebody's skipping five chapters. I'm just being honest with you so that you can be honest in return, right? And say, I also don't read carefully Leviticus. They memorized it. He should have known this was Messiah, but he didn't need a Messiah that much, did he? She did. She needed a lot of sin forgiven. So how did she receive Jesus? Through tears and shame and heartbroken over her own sin and unworthiness. Look at Acts 16. Uh, if you get there before me, it's, we're going to pick it up in verse 11. Acts 16, 11. Acts sixteen eleven. Uh, we're in the middle of, of a missionary journey. They're on a boat. Luke says, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, from there to Philippi. We're in Acts 16 12 now, about halfway through the verse, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And some of you are like, I already quit listening because I don't care about geography. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. So what's going on here is we're in um, we're in Greek country to the point where there's no expectation on the part of Paul and the missionary band that there would be a synagogue. So where do Jews go to worship God? They go into nature. So they go down to the riverside, supposing there might be a, a place of prayer prayer there. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Um, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So stay in Acts 16, because we're not done. But let's deal with this. Lydia was different than the woman in, uh, in Luke 7, right? This is a respectable woman. This is probably a wealthy woman, because purple was like the color fabric that, that royalty wore. I'm sure you've all heard this in first grade Sunday school, so I'm not going to get into it. The point is... Luke says she was a worshiper of God. So <clears throat> she's had a distinct advantage over uh, the prostitute in Luke 7, right? Well, if Jesus was a prophet, he would have known what kind of woman this is. Well, that tells you what kind of woman that was that was wiping his feet and weeping and anointing them with, with, uh, with ointment. Lydia, to the contrary, is as best she can at that time and in that place, as best she can, she's sitting in church. Now, granted, it's down by the river. We might try that. I don't know. We'll see what happens. She's sitting in church and he says she's a worshiper of God. So she has some semblance um, of understanding of who God, Yahweh, is and what he's done. She has some sense of the history of the Hebrews And she's listening as Paul rolls in and starts to speak. And then it says, Jesus uh, opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So nothing complicated. No great drama here. No mysterious doctrine uh, from which I'm going to write a bestseller. The Lord opened her heart. And whatever she was as a worshiper of God in the moments before he opened her heart, she discovered quickly was insufficient for eternal life. She had some Old Testament understanding of of the God of all the universe that became an understanding unto salvation when Jesus lifted the veil. She didn't buy her way in. Paul didn't have some secret revelation. We know what Paul preached throughout the course of his ministry because he told us last week he preached Jesus. All of him, to everyone who will listen. She didn't catch God's attention by being just a hair more faithful than those in the culture around her, although it doesn't hurt that she was at church. Like it helped. From a human perspective, I mean, God's going to save everybody he's going to save. But if you're kind of like, if you're struggling and you're not really sure you buy all this Bible stuff and all this Christianity stuff, and, and you want to be honest in figuring out whether or not it's legit, I think this is as good a place to be as any, because I'm not going to try to manipulate you into believing. I'm just going to tell you the truth, and I, and I think all the other folks in this room would say the same thing. You need to appreciate that Lydia did not earn the opening of her heart. The Lord opened it. He does what he wants. It's, it's kind of a mystery to us. God just did it. Look at verse 16. We're still in Acts. As we were going to the place of prayer, so this is a different day, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, the way that Luke writes it lacks the inflection that a demoniac would probably use while chasing after a Christian missionary and shouting, albeit the truth, what she's shouting. Okay? So this kept going on for many days, verse 18. Paul... (laughs) having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So a slave girl, demon-possessed, but she could tell the future. Right? Um, someone had realized it, bought her, and rather than, you know, spend their money to try and free her of this oppression, they, they sought to profit from it in se- instead. Men who seek to profit from oppression that women are under, I don't know. Does that remind you of anything in our day? So how did this poor girl receive Jesus. How did, how did the, he would have known what kind of woman this was, kissing his feet. How did she receive Jesus? Through tears, with a broken heart, probably not convinced that he would receive her. How did Lydia receive Jesus? She went to church one day and the Lord lifted the veil in her heart and she comprehended who Jesus was and believed him. How does this girl believe Jesus? How did she come to receive Jesus? And don't misunderstand. Again, the manner in which she was proclaiming loudly, these men are servants of the most high God. That was not, like, she wasn't trying to help out. You would not want this person following you around saying anything true about you, ever. And, and you know, besides the fact that it was a mockery and an irritant, I'm not sure I've ever been around somebody demon-possessed, but I feel like I probably have been because I can think of a couple of folks that I was just like, oof, that's different. And I didn't want to be around it. So Luke Luke says, I mean, Paul was a man like the rest of us, right? Maybe he wasn't as gentle as he should have been or his motives weren't first and foremost concern for this girl because Luke says Paul got annoyed, greatly annoyed. Uh, And he commands the devil to come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ, whom this girl had now listened to many days of sermons about. And just like that, she was free. While the text isn't explicit, I believe it means she received Jesus. So how did she receive Jesus? In the throes of demonic possession, the Lord intervened. Again, no, no burning orphanages no millions of dollars contributed to the church it was she just she just believed the gospel because he gripped her heart how did you receive Jesus maybe it was a moment where the light came on in your mind and you just knew you knew he was God maybe it was a time of unspeakable hurting maybe it was in the midst of unbearable shame maybe it was in a moment of uh, where you were like so afraid of you could barely even speak. Maybe it was when you were so racked with guilt you didn't think anybody could possibly love you. How did you receive Jesus? Did you have to memorize the Pentateuch like the Pharisees? Did you have to kill an ox? Did you have to stand tethered to a tree for three days in the storm hoping for a vision? Did you have to journey up the mountain and recite the Torah or was it just by faith You received him. Was it by realizing, recognizing, comprehending, embracing by believing? Did you have doubts at the time? Do you still have doubts? I do. I have to make a foray periodically into the realm of some pretty convincing arguments against the existence of God and creation and and all that I believe is true. Because if I don't make forays into those arguments, then I am not equipped to equip you to believe in spite of those things. And there have been moments where I'm like, oof, hadn't thought about that before. And I gotta go back to the word of God and figure out what I believe all over again. I have moments of doubt. Every Christian does. Mark 9, 20, they brought a boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Not something you want to be around, right? Jesus looked at his father and said, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. I believe. Help my unbelief. And When Jesus saw that the crowd had come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and in convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Yeah, we all have some doubts. This boy's father had some doubts. Did you not know very much when when you received Jesus? Mark 10, 13, they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Not often do you see Jesus described in the scriptures as indignant. But when they were preventing the kids from coming, that made him indignant. And he said to them, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying hands on them. This doesn't mean that that we're supposed to be uninformed, illiterate, untaught, and easily fooled. That is not what it means to receive Jesus like a child. What it does mean is that your faith ought to be uncomplicated. How did you receive Jesus? Wasn't it just didn't you just feel really awful about your sin and really tired of living in fear, shame and guilt? Wasn't that part of it? And you heard this message about a man who knew everything about you and might love you anyway, who was also the son of God incarnate? That's it's so ridiculous sounding when you describe it in sterile terms because it's so simple and uncomplicated. Wasn't it just that you became convinced in your heart that what the Bible says about Jesus is probably true? Even though you didn't know everything that the Bible says about Jesus? Didn't you receive Jesus by turning away from your sin and taking hold by faith of this Savior of sinners? Didn't you receive Jesus by repenting and believing? Come on. Yeah, so now what? You received him by turning away from sin and embracing him by faith. And you long for the day when you will lay eyes on him and be just like him. And, and maybe you can even get a hug from him. That's how you received him. So now what? Well, how long has it been? Has it been a year, two, five, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 40, 50? All these years go by. Now what? Well, so here's what Paul says. He says, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Keep doing what you did at first. Keep doing what you did at first. As you received Jesus, so walk in him. Quit looking for the mystery. Stop searching for something more complicated. I know. I get it. Men with large foreheads have come up with terms like hypostatic union and infralapsarianism. And you feel like, oh, I'm just an infant in the faith. No, you're not. No, you're not. You no, know, every, every day that goes by that you get up and you stare that sinner in the mirror, in the face, and yet cry out to God for mercy and help and cry out to Jesus for love and affection and and the increase of your faith and walk with him as best you can in a land of the living where the culture is corrupt. Every day that happens. You grow a little bit. You mature a little bit. You know him a little better. You understand a little more clearly how desperate you are for that mercy that he freely and fully offers. Every day. You don't need something else. What Paul says couldn't be more simple. How did you receive Jesus? Do that again today. Do that again. What'd you do? I received and believed. I repented. Well, then do that. I turned away from my sin. Awesome. Do that. I have to. I've already sinned in my heart so breathtakingly today. I almost don't want to share this with you, but I'm going to because it might comfort you a little bit. This is going to sound like whining, bragging. It's not. This is a confession of sin, all right? So don't get hung up on the first part. I get seven hours a week to myself, and it happens when I leave here on Sunday morning. That's it. That's all I get. I'm up at four, studying the Word, getting ready for next Sunday, tomorrow morning. I go to work. I work on average 46 to 50 hours, I come home, I want to hang with my kids and my wife. That's not time to myself. I get Sundays after church. They, they're like, whatever you want to do, Dad, guess what I get to do today? I got a faucet that won't turn off. And there is no uh, valve between the main end of the house and the faucet that won't turn off. That's how I get to spend my Sunday. Right? So I find that out at 8.50 when my wife texts me. And I'm like, oh, there goes my day. Thanks a lot, God. Yeah, I thought that. Guess what I needed to do? I'm like, all right, now you're going to go up and preach with that attitude? You're going to go up and encourage these people to follow Jesus? Yep, right after I repented and believed. Every day, it's what you got to do. Do it again today. Stay rooted in him, be built up in him, and be thankful. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we need your help because this stuff is not easy. Uh, but it's not because it's not simple. It's not that it's so complex we can't comprehend it. It's not easy because we're proud. Yeah, We're proud and we think, Uh, eventually we'll get to the point where we don't need the same grace and mercy and kindness that we received the day we came to faith. But we do need that grace and mercy and kindness. We need it every day, as long as it's called today. So would you help us to do the deeds we did at first? To believe in you, to worship you, and to turn away from our sin? over and over and over for as long as it takes before we see you and become just like you. That's what we need. Help us. Lest we, like children, go astray, drift off into unbelief, and then have to be chastised and disciplined and, and, and have pain inflicted in our lives in order to bring us back. Just keep us. Bind us with cords of love. Keep us at your side. We pray for this in your beautiful name. Amen.